0: The Energy Gang is brought to you by SunGrow. SunGrow is the leading global supplier of inverter solutions for renewables and also for storage. During these uncertain times, SunGrow is committed to protecting its employees and continuing to reliably serve its customers around the world. SunGrow has leveraged its extensive network across the U.S. to distribute face masks to communities in need. Learn more about SunGrow's work at SunGrowPower.com. From Green Tech Media, this is the Energy Gang. Weekly debates and discussions about the fast-changing world of energy. I am Stephen Lacey. I'm a contributing editor at GTM. Welcome to the show. This week, some hopeful signs amid the economic destruction— One is in the battery market. North Dakota, Hawaii, California, China, it seems like almost every day there are new battery storage projects unveiled in the hundreds of megawatts or even multi-gigawatts. The deals are doing more than just providing reliability and stability and voltage support. They're actually replacing coal and oil power plants. Has the moment for baseload renewables really arrived? Then, coal generation in the U.S. could fall by 25% this year. Overall demand for power will be down, and coal is taking a big hit. Meanwhile, renewable generation will continue to climb because it is simply the cheapest option. We'll look at the latest signs from leading research groups. Finally, Joe Biden's climate posse takes shape. We'll look at who's on the team and who will influence his approach. I got a posse of my own here. That posse is Jiggershaw and Catherine Hamilton. They're here with me to sort out the news. Uh, Catherine's in Washington, D.C. Well, she's usually in Washington, D.C. She's in Arlington, Virginia, in her lovely bedroom. Uh, She's the co-founder of 38 North Solutions, and she is our policy, politics expert, and our storage wonk, too, so she'll help us out with Today's conversation. Hey, Catherine.
1: Hi. I'm glad that I know that we tape every Thursday morning, or I would not know what day of the week it w- is ever. Just kind of <laughs> runs together anymore. <laughs>
0: Jigger is in Bethesda, Maryland. He is the co founder and president of Generate Capital. Hi, Jigger.
2: Hi. Do you know what day it is? I do, but honestly, I think it's only because of my Outlook calendar. Otherwise, uh, I would have no idea what day it is. It all runs together these days. Well, what a year it's shaping up to be
0: for storage. Uh, Manufacturing has taken a hit, and some projects are getting delayed for obvious reasons. Um, Our analysts at Wood Mackenzie say that the coronavirus crisis will trim 2020 forecasts for battery installations globally by almost 20%, but they still expect it to be a record year. And the projects that caught our eye are not going to get built this year, but they do show the strength and resiliency of this market. A few examples here, a coal plant in North Dakota is going to be replaced in part with a one-acre battery array that uses a new technology capable of discharging for 150 hours. That's more than 30 times longer than uh, lithium-ion batteries. Uh, The electric utility in Hawaii just awarded contracts for 16 projects that add up to more than 3 gigawatt hours of storage, and those will replace an oil-fired and coal-fired power plant. In California, Southern California Edison signed contracts for 770 megawatts of batteries, many of them paired with solar projects to replace aging gas plants. Plus, in China, more hybrid wind, solar, and battery plants are starting to emerge, and Wood Mackenzie expects rapid growth in batteries within China in the coming years. It's The country will lead Asia. This led Dan Finfoley, Foley, who is Wood Mackenzie's head of energy storage, to proclaim to uh, our journalists at Greentech Media... The utility energy storage market is blowing through milestones faster than we can report them. For example, those SCE projects are together worth 200 megawatts more than the entire 2019 market, says Fin Foley. So let's go through these. I think we should focus on the bright, shiny objects first. What do we know about this Form Energy project? Catherine mentioned this at the end of a recent show. So Catherine. What is Great River Energy? Who is form energy? And what kind of battery could emerge from this relationship?
1: So Great River Energy is the largest generation and transmission co-op. And what that means is it generates and provides power under long-term contracts to a bunch of member co-ops, like 28 member co-ops. And this is how a lot of the co-op system is formed in the U.S., where there's are small co-ops that are often serving rural communities. They are very much about keeping costs low for their customers. And customers own the co-ops, they are customer owners. Um, but then they sign up for long-term agreements with these GNT and t providers um, because it does save the money in the long run. And a lot of these g providers we've seen have these long-term contracts um, for old coal plants. <laughs> and so Great River Energy is one of those g and and they made a decision a while back to shut down coal, a coal plant, coal strip. And they have been thinking about, how are we going to backfill it? And what are we going to use to do that? And so they've certainly been deploying a lot of renewables. And they just recently entered into this agreement with Form Energy. And Form is a startup um, led by Matteo Jaramillo, who came out of Tesla. He was the energy storage guru there. Yet Ming Chang, who is an MIT professor, who has been really another brains behind storage, and Ted Wiley, who co-founded Aquion, another energy storage company. And there are a couple of other MIT folks too, Billy Woodford and Marco Ferrara. And it's just a team of incredible minds who decided to try to calm at storage by thinking about it as potentially being able to replace all of these Non cost effective coal plants. And so their technology seeks to be super cheap, long duration. Um, non-toxic, something you would find everywhere to be able to you know, put together a type of a flow battery that could just replace the footprint of any fossil fuel plant. So that is their goal. And that's what uh, Great River Energy has decided to take a bet on. Let's talk
0: about the tech first and then the rural cooperatives piece second. Jigger, this is a battery we don't know much about, but they call it an aqueous air battery. What does that
2: mean? Well, it basically in it it uses more abundant materials because what you find is is that the metals that like they're water. using, yeah, well, water, but also the metals that they're using are quite um you know easy to find, and so it's aluminum, zinc, magnesium, et cetera, right and so so what you find is is that they have this ability to use low cost materials right, and they're able to Um, store lots of energy. So when you think about this, and Matteo talks about this in his interview, um, the way that lithium-ion batteries work is that you can actually charge quickly and discharge quickly, but it's the same amount of time, basically, to charge it as to discharge it. And so what you find is is that with these batteries, um, it's around like sort of being able to constrict the nozzle and only making it one megawatt, right? Because you can imagine that You can make a lithium-ion battery that's 100 megawatts in size, but only dispatch one megawatt at a time, and then make it last 150 hours. Now, the problem with that, though, is it's a super expensive way to get a 150-hour battery, whereas this is a much cheaper way. And it's it's similar to sort of the vanadium redux batteries and others where you basically have this, the fluid that, that holds the charge can be expanded at a very low cost, right? The fuel cell that converts that fluid into energy that's utilized is the expensive part, right? So the more... Uh, hours you add, the lower the cost per kilowatt hour is, right? And so, so that's the that's the main driver of these kinds of batteries, is that you you want them to be ultra long, because otherwise the fuel cell cost, the cost that actually does the converting, dwarfs the cost of the the energy storage.
1: Yeah, and if you think of it in comparison to like an EV battery um, or a lithium-ion battery that's doing, say, frequency regulation, that's operating at, on a daily cycle very, very quickly, thousands, hundreds, and thousands of cycles. This is like a seasonal, monthly or seasonal, which is at you know, tens or singles of cycles. And so it's a very different way of operating, but it's also a set of very different use cases.
2: And And basically, I'd say on a macro basis, this is the main competitor to power to gas. So what what happens is when you think about long range seasonal storage, what you're doing is you're keeping everything in the system. So you're charging it with electricity and you're discharging it into electricity. So it's staying within the electric system, not unlike lithium ion batteries would. When you go to power to gas, you're actually, you know, jumping the shark, right? You're going to transportation fuels, you're going to chemicals, you're going to ammonia, you're going to fertilizer. You're basically saying, how do we arbitrage the value of these other things? Cuz you could imagine electricity at one day could be virtually costless for a long period of time. So it could be that there's never a good time for form energy to discharge back into the grid because it's always oversupplied with electricity, right? And so and so so you protect yourself by being able to then sell those gases into the transportation market or into the other places, right? And so that I mean, we're going to need both. Don't get me wrong. I don't think it's one or the other. But those are the two big competitive theories on life is whether you keep it within the system or whether you jump from electricity to other systems.
1: Yeah. And I would just say if we look at long duration, you know, if you look at all of the different technologies that fall into that category... You're looking at pumped hydro, those stacked blocks that we've talked about before. (laughs)
0: Stackable blocks, yeah. Energy vault.
1: That's right. Liquid air, underground compression, which Jared has talked about too, and these flow batteries. So those all fall into this category of long duration.
0: So this battery is just one piece of the renewables mix that Great River Energy is planning um, as it starts to shut down coal. Where does it fit into their current procurement plans.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've heard them talk about what their plans are for months now. And this is one piece of it. But they're looking at, you know, how do we integrate all kinds of storage technologies with renewables uh, to backfill from shutting down coal plants. But the one thing they have been absolutely certain on is that they're shutting down the coal plant. So now they're coming up with all of the different options that they have to continue to serve all of their 28 co-op customers.
0: So this is a big deal because rural electric cooperatives serve 12% of Americans. They have been the slowest to embrace the energy transition and the phase out of coal. So this is an industry-leading move. And the storage piece is also quite compelling. Mateo Jaramillo, one of the co-founders, said, it's important that the broader industry knows that this kind of thing is coming Because if that causes regulators and other planners to pause and evaluate just how fast it's going to show up, then that's fantastic. And so um, uh, John Farrell of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance in a piece um, written by Inside Climate News said, this is great news because a lot of these rural electric cooperatives learn from each other. And so when one makes a big move, many of them often follow. Um, What is the significance of both the general renewables development and the storage project on this part of the electric power business.
1: So I would just say one thing about the co-ops is that they, because they're very pegged to the cost, they've always tried to figure out what's the cheapest thing for us to do. And I, I wouldn't say that means that they've been behind on the energy transition writ large. In fact, they were some of the first to experiment with demand response using hot water heaters. And I think that's because everything is pegged to cost for them. And so when they have these big contracts to buy cheap power, that was for a long time coal. Now that coal has become uneconomic, they find themselves in positions of having to pay these enormous balloon payments and have all this debt to these big G&Ts. And now the G&Ts are trying to figure out like, how do we transition so that we can provide a better deal to our co-ops in the long run? So I would not characterize it as co-ops are necessarily slow. I just think that they have very different drivers from investor owned utilities.
2: Well, this is a place where I depart, though. I mean, I I do think they've been slow. I mean, I've been working with NRECA for, God knows, probably 10 years, which is the National Rural Electric Co-op Association. And Joe Daniels from the Union of Concerned Scientists, who's written about this, has shown that co-ops have been the places where consumers have systematically had to pay for bad mistakes on expensive coal plants for a long time. This particularly is with GRE and with, you know, Tri-State, which has, I think, been the more notorious GNT, where their co-ops actually sued all the way to the Supreme Court to leave the co-op because a lot of these co-ops have, you know, agreements signed in blood that like require them to stay with the GNT to buy their energy forever. So the the state of Colorado has finally allowed several of Tri-State's uh, customers, Kit Carlson Electric and then Deltra Montrose and now two others, to leave the co-op because Tri-State is mostly coal, right? And And they are at a significant price above the market because they you know, basically want to run these coal plants all the way through their amortization period with their bonds before shutting them down early. If you guys remember correctly, there was that guy in the red sweater during the 2016 presidential debate, Ken Bone. Ken Bone. He worked for one of these coal plants. It came online in 2012 and has never made money. Every single year, that coal plant sells power into the MISO market and actually has to pay a net settlement charge because it's selling it at a loss, right? Why they haven't shut it down? Because 35 co-ops basically own it, right? So it's one of those things where I agree with you that the co-ops can be more flexible, but to date, they've really wanted their old infrastructure to get fully paid off before they make any changes. Bonus points to Jigger for bringing Ken Bone
0: into the conversation. (laughs)
1: Well, also, though, remember Tri State has has announced that they're going to add 700 megawatts of solar by 2024. So they're trying to shift also and trying to work out securitization for some of those plants so that they're. Amazing what a
2: Supreme Court case could do. (laughs) I
1: know, totally.
2: Explain. Tri-State was taken to court by Delta I mean, Tri-State said, no way you can leave the contract with us. And Delta said, but we can do solar and wind at half the price of what you're supplying it to us for. And Tri-State said, well, we made a whole bunch of mistakes in the past. It sucks to be you. You signed this contract to buy all your power from us. And they took it all the way up the courts. And, you know, the court system said, you're right. You know, you shouldn't have to stay in a, a, a contract that basically ties you to the bad mistakes that Tri-State made, right? And so then they negotiated an exit fee. The utility company was able to pay $100 million or something to basically leave Tri-State, pay for whatever their previous sins were. And now Delta Montrose has far lower costs than the average co-op within Tri-State because, you know, they don't have to pay for all the past sins. So
0: bringing this back around to the storage piece, Form Energy... The company developing this battery is a group of industry-leading technologists and entrepreneurs. So I feel like if there's a group that can pull this off over the next couple of years, it will
2: be them. I doubt it, though. Any final thoughts? I doubt it. Why? Because I think this is actually not about Form Energy. Form Energy is the same as Energy Vault. It's the same as QuidNet. It's the same as all these other fantastic companies that are 20 years away from having a real solution that's going to scale to the level of the announcements that we heard this week, right? I mean, when you think about what Hawaii is doing to get off of fossil fuels by the end of this decade, I think at this point, um, you know, they're using established technologies, not any of this new stuff.
1: I think one of the secret sauces to Form is that they have a modeling tool called Formware and they've been working with utilities by using this model modeling tool to show them what's possible. So that as a utility, you know, most of their modeling tools, the answer to any kind of input is build a new natural gas plant. <laughs> um, but the, this gives them a different picture of what is possible.
0: Yeah, and we'll know in a couple of years, Jigger. I mean, the, the difference with form is that they now have this long-term relationship built in and they have to deliver on this project. So we will know whether the technology works or not. So
2: we're making a bet? Is that what I hear? Then like, Mm. you know, you're you're making a bet on a one megawatt deployment for GRE. (laughs) I'm in. I think we're going to talk about hundreds and hundreds of megawatts of, you know, contracts that were awarded this last month. I'm in. Well, let's go into those contracts. I'm not. I'm a homer though. (laughs) I'm a homer. Well, Catherine, we got Catherine (laughs) in the betting mood. So
0: let's talk about the Hawaii deployments. What's going on there in Hawaii, Catherine? There are a lot of projects in the works now, and those projects are designed to help phase out oil and coal plants there on the the islands.
1: Yeah, I mean, a huge driver for them is policy. It's 100% clean energy by 2045. They have to, I mean, their, their energy is so expensive. Those coal and oil plants are so expensive. So it's cheaper for them to build renewables. For a while, they decided that they weren't able to interconnect renewables because they wouldn't be able to do it without messing up the system. They figured out smart inverters could help. Um, And now they're all in. And in almost every area, they're doing solar plus storage, some combination. They already have a lot of renewables deployed. Um, So right now, it looks like they're gonna get 16 new projects, about 460 megawatts of solar and three gigawatts of batteries. So it's pretty big stuff.
0: Jager, what's the significance here in
2: Hawaii? Well, it, Hawaii has been a really interesting story of um, the art of the possible, right? To Catherine's point on the software that Form Energy is sharing with, with utility companies, when you think about where Hawaii has been, it's really been policymakers and regulators saying, we want access to the best stuff. We want folks to give us their best ideas. And they've had an accelerator. They've had the National Renewable Energy Laboratory helping them. And the utilities have largely been fighting them. And I would say that this RFP has basically, you know, encapsulated the transformation of the utility into sort of a a cheerleader for this transformation. I would say before then they were sort of a reluctant... um, you know, sort of complier with regulation. But today, I think they're finally saying, you know what, this is in the best interest of our ratepayers, and we are going to figure it out for our shareholders. Does that also say something about the performance of batteries? Since this is
0: a storage conversation, what does that tell us about their belief
2: in the technology itself? I don't think it's about belief, right? Remember, like, you know, the battery in Australia that Tesla put in with a lot of fanfare over Twitter uh, has already paid for itself in less than two years, right? And so it wasn't like Hawaii didn't have this information four or five years ago. They were just very reluctant to do it. They were reluctant to pay for it. They just wanted the lowest cost possible cost per kilowatt hour from solar and wind farms that didn't have batteries associated with them. And they were just going to use their fossil generation to, you know, To compensate for the variability of renewable energy. I mean, people were pitching them storage four years ago. They just were reluctant to be the guinea pig on it. Now, you know, now that Australia and others have proven that it works and actually pays for itself rather quickly, they've now said, we can be the 18th person to deploy it. Coming up, some mixed signs for renewable energy. First, a quick word
0: about SunGrow, our supporter of the show. SunGrow is responsible for the inverters behind many of these new hybrid power plants. And SunGrow is also very serious about keeping its employees safe, and keeping projects delivered on time in a safe manner during the COVID-19 outbreak. When the company realized the severity of the current outbreak, it put together a task force to facilitate decision-making in the face of uncertainty. SunGrow prioritized the safety of its employees by investing in measures to protect factory workers from infection. And the company is collaborating closely with suppliers and customers to ensure it can deliver inverter solutions safely and on schedule to project developers around the world. As a leading supplier of solar inverters in the U.S., Sungrow has leveraged its logistics network across the country to distribute face masks to communities in need. You can learn all about Sungrow at sungrowpower.com. The International Energy Agency is forecasting 2020 will represent the biggest decline in electricity consumption since the Great Depression, and fossil fuel power, especially coal fired power plants, seems to be absorbing almost all of that loss. Clean power is a different picture. A new IEA report says that renewables capacity development is going to decline by 13% in 2020 compared to last year, but those numbers will quickly rebound. And despite the capacity slowdown, um, it also says that renewable generation will increase this year, and that's because uh, renewable energy power plants, wind and solar power plants, are capable of pushing higher-cost fossil resources out of the market. The IEA analysts said, in all regions that implemented lockdown measures, the electricity supply underwent a notable shift toward low carbon energy sources. Jigger, why did this happen?
2: Well, first of all, I think we called it here on the Energy Gang five weeks ago. So I think we're uh, we're ahead of the curve. Review the tape. uh, Review the tape. But no, look, I think that this is not around cost. And this is where I think people really screw up. This is not because renewable energy is cheaper than coal, although it is. It's because of the merit order, impacts in the way in which we've structured electricity markets. So electricity markets allow the technologies that have the lowest variable cost, not total costs, to bid into the market and to get cleared by the market first. And so solar and wind are must-clear, always allowed to operate uh, resources. And so whether it's Italy or Germany or the UK or the US, they always get to operate. They never get curtailed unless there's a physical... You know, sort of bottleneck that you can't overcome. Right. And so, in this period of a reduction in electricity demand, almost all of the plants that have been asked to take their foot off the gas to be able to, like, actually, you know, balance the market have been fossil fuel plants. So, it's not. I'm confused. How is that not in function of cost? I mean, if the merit order is rewarding the lowest cost resources. I mean so if, if 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 I were to have a PPA with PG&E that said that I get 17 cents a kilowatt hour for my solar I still get to produce even if that's a higher price than the coal plant right because because the variable cost savings of shutting down my solar plant is zero, right? So you're like, you're like why would you make me shut down, right? And so, so all of the renewable energy plants, from the ones who have 17 cent PPAs to the ones who have 1.8 cent PPAs, are all allowed to run in preference order ahead of coal. And so, so by definition, if you have a reduction in energy demand, coal is the first one to get curtailed you know, in the way in which these wholesale power markets work. And that's why in the UK, you've seen over 100 days of, you know, no coal power being used in the grid, right? And all of those effects are the way in which we've structured the way the wholesale power markets work.
0: Good explanation. So does this create lasting change? I mean, is this going to force coal generators out of the market permanently? Or is this a short term... Variation.
1: So I reached out also to Joe Daniel from the Union of Concerned Scientists. <laughs> <laughs> he has the most shout outs of anyone
0: on this show. I'm I mean...
1: serious. And he said <laughs> in MISO, which is the you know middle part of the country, in March, like 15% of the coal generation that came in was uneconomic. And what that means is that all those costs are push down to the customer who has to pay more for uneconomic plants. So something has to give on that. It's probably going to have to be the regulators who say, look, this is not sustainable. We have to do something. So um, they still continue to operate. He said, if you're a CEO of a utility looking at today's energy landscape and you aren't thinking about retiring coal plants, then you're the one who should retire. <laughs> Well, what could
0: decelerate the trend then? I mean, will you see certain regulatory bodies or politicians try to protect these coal plants? If we take the Great River coal plant that we talked about at the top of the show, uh, after it was announced that that plant was going to be shutting down, there were a bunch of Republican politicians who were like, no, we have to save this plant. Now, there are a lot of jobs that are going to be lost, and it's not clear how those jobs are going to be earned back. So I understand the impulse But I wonder, will you see more of this um, as a lot of these plants are threatened given the current situation?
1: I mean, obviously, I'm a policy person. So I look at the Great River Energy operating in Minnesota and Minnesota having a 100% target. So I think it does matter what the state policies are. And the states that have the longer term renewable energy or clean energy targets are going to see more renewable energy development.
2: Yeah. And I'll take the other side of it, which is basically that, you know, while a politician could keep a coal plant running for an extra 2 years an extra 3 years an extra 5 years at some point just the sheer weight of of demanding that the ratepayers pay all that extra money every month in their bills and some of those ratepayers are quite influential industrial companies etc you could imagine that like the the coal plants will fall under the weight of those extra costs and so so you know you could see short-term extensions of life on these coal plants. But I do think that this is m- going to be the deceleration of coal. And in fact, I'd say that the the IEA and many others are postulating that this is actually peak fossil fuels, that at, at this point, like we'll probably never use as much oil as we did in 2019. We'll probably never use as much coal as we did in 2019. Natural gas is still on the bubble. People aren't quite sure there because there's so much new infrastructure on the natural gas side. But for certain, like, I think there are many smart people now calling this the peak fossil for coal and oil. Let's globalize
0: this a bit. What about China? Do we see a continued coal decline in China? I mean, what would it take for this trend to accelerate there?
1: Yeah, so I've talked to Fatih Birol about this. And he says, you know, they would have...
0: Fatih Birol is the executive director of the International Energy Agency. Fatih and I were drinking.
2: We were taking shots last night. Really? Over Zoom? No. Zoom? shots
0: with Fatih Birol?
2: No, I'm kidding. I'm, I'm kidding. I just like... Catherine's like, you know, Fatih I and I were talking. Well,
1: Fatih and I know each other. All right. All right. So Fatih Birol, who is the head of the International Energy Agency, and as we've talked about him before, is quite influential in you know deciding what the global markets might look like. And he has said... You know, coal, China would have to be OK with having stranded assets and closing all of those plants that they've been building before the end of their useful life. And that may end up happening. I mean, the air quality is a huge issue for their populations. And I think the population is now seeing what it's like to not have a lot of that air pollution. And uh, that in and of itself could cause a rethinking of some of those coal plants.
2: Yeah, it's a it's a mixed story um, across Asia. So India has really poor quality coal. Right for them to really maintain their coal plants, they have to import coal from Mozambique, Indonesia, um, Australia, et cetera. Right, and that stuff's expensive. And so, so it's a pretty easy thing for India to say, yeah, we're going to get rid of coal as soon as we technology, you know, the technology allows us to do so, and the construction firms can, you know, build more solar and wind projects because. For them, you know, like they're importing the coal anyway. And so it's like, okay, we reduce imports of coal, we, um, you know, increase uh, local energy. For the Chinese, it's much more difficult because the Chinese have super optimized coal delivery systems, right? You're talking about a cost plus system where they have coal plants right next to coal mines, they've got, you know, huge expansive rail infrastructure that they built for this coal, they can ship a lot of this coal for less than $6 a ton directly to coal plants, right? As opposed to market prices here in the United States of $45 a ton from West Virginia coal and you know $14, $15, $18 a ton coal from Powder River Basin. So you're talking about super cheap coal um, in China. And so it's, it's unlikely that you're going to have China... Um, let that coal just sit in the ground and never get burned. But you could imagine China saying, as Catherine's pointing out, that all incremental new uh, demand is going to come from cleaner sources because of air pollution concerns and other things.
0: So what about projects that are going to take a lot longer to develop, like offshore wind projects, geothermal, hydropower? How might the COVID crisis impact those
2: industries? Jigger? So, I mean, I was talking to Orsted uh, this week and they're the one who have a lot of the uh, offshore wind projects off the east coast of the United States and they're they're running you know without any delays. I mean there's there's some delays obviously out of the Trump administration around getting um, some of the the approvals that they need. But in terms of their intensity around raising capital and getting folks to sign power purchase agreements, remember we have this huge deal that we did in Virginia, where you know Dominion is going to rate base a lot of that offshore wind. You've got uh, New Jersey and New York fighting for who's going to bring their offshore wind online first, and so. They don't think that there's going to be a lot of delay here, particularly because remember the way offshore wind works is this is very high capacity factor energy, right? You're talking about 60%, 65% of the time the wind is blowing and, and, and it's blowing exactly when... Um, the Northeast cities need it, right? So, in the wintertime, in the wintertime, you're talking about an average wind speed of 20, 30, 40 miles an hour in some of these places. And so, and the last piece of it is you're able to bring the power directly into cities through underground transmission lines in the water, right? So, Baltimore, New York, Newark, all these places can get. You know, get around a lot of the transmission constraints. So I think you're going to see that move unabated. On the geothermal side, you're going to have a huge uptick in projects that start because of policy. So the the way that the tax credits work in um, the geothermal space is that they have to be under construction this year or else they don't get access to the tax credits. And so ORMAD has five big projects that they're going to be starting in the United States. I think Fervo Energy's got some projects they're starting. And so I think you're going to see a lot of projects get started in that vein. The places where I think we have a lot of concern is in the hydro space, not because hydro is a bad place, but just because everywhere where a five megawatt or above power plant can be done in a way that's safe for fish has already been done. And so the next level of growth for hydro is the sub five megawatt stage, of which there are gigawatts and gigawatts of capacity, but the economic model hasn't been figured out yet there. So FERC has figured out how to streamline permits, there's a lot of cities that have old dams that can be repaired, and you see people doing it, but when you talk to Eagle Creek or Cube Hydro or some of these other players, they mostly find these projects to be annoying and they really just think that the overhead costs of dealing with them are hard. And so my sense is is that it's there's actual real work that has to be done by policymakers to figure out how to get small hydro kicked into high gear.
1: Yeah, and I think institutions, universities campuses might be looking at that with a little more seriousness than the big developers. One sector I think that is still also up in the air is biofuels. And that's partly because of the vast decline in demand from transportation sector. And then also because like the when it starts coming back, when transportation starts coming back and oil prices are still low, people are gonna go back to oil and there's there is some fear about biofuels.
0: Let's finish up the show with some election news. Uh, a big development in our corner of the political world. Joe Biden is giving his clearest signal yet on climate. He joined with Senator Bernie Sanders to unveil a new climate task force, bringing together leading progressive voices like Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the Sunrise Movement's Executive Director Varshini Prakash, uh, together with moderates, you know, government veterans like former Secretary of State John Kerry and former EPA head Gina McCarthy. One consultant called it a climate dream team in a story from Inside Climate News. Already, a lot of youth voters who shunned Biden are coming around on him. So what will this task force accomplish in terms of agenda setting and setting the political tone? Catherine, who is on this task force?
1: So just uh, to back up for one second, there are a number of task forces that Biden and Sanders decided to pull together on a bunch of topics to try to pull all of the factions of the Democratic Party together. So there's one on education, one on criminal justice, one on health care, immigration, economy, and then this is climate. So other members besides AOC and John Kerry, and I wouldn't say John Kerry is necessarily moderate. I mean, John Kerry negotiated the Paris Accord. So he's really been a leader on climate for a really long time. He's just been doing it for a long time. Um, Kathy Castor from Florida is a congresswoman who ha- who chairs the Select Committee on the Climate Crisis. She's been a great leader on climate change and in trying to think through policies. Uh, Carrie Duggan um, is from Detroit. She was in Barack Obama's task force and on Detroit, and, and is a venture capitalist. Catherine Flowers is the founder of the Center for Rural Enterprise and Environmental Justice from out of Alabama. And then, as you mentioned, Gina McCarthy, and then also Representative Donald McKechnie from the great Commonwealth of Virginia, who represents Richmond and has sponsored several um, environmental justice pieces of legislation, but also is the lead on the Renewable Portfolio Standard. So um, McKeachin has been great on that. And this does seem like a group of people who are serious thinkers, who understand how things work, how the government works, how politics work, but that can also bring some fresh ideas to the table.
0: So what's Biden trying to do by bringing these folks together, Catherine?
1: well, he needs to have some fresh ideas. We can't have incrementalism that we, we've had previously. This is a whole different way of getting voters energized and getting good policy put into place. So there are a couple of different things. One is, what is the policy you're gonna put forward that is gonna make a difference on climate change? And the other thing is, how do you energize people, not just anti-Trump, but how do you energize people into a positive agenda that will get people out to vote, that'll get people to register to vote, get new voters in, and um, really you know, turn out for the election?
0: I didn't get my task force invite. Did either of you? <laughs> it's in the Perhaps it's in the, mail. in the mail. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Jigger, what what uh, what will these task forces accomplish? I mean, does this mean that we're going to see new stuff coming out of the Biden campaign?
2: Yeah, color me skeptical. Um, I think, <laughs> in general, the way this kind of stuff works is, Biden says, "I have to deal with Sanders." Sanders says, "Here's what I need from you." Biden says, "Great, you can rewrite the Democratic platform, which doesn't mean anything," and like, I, and I get to not change any of the core people on my climate team, and so we'll see. Like, you know, like I think this whole notion that this is the new Biden team is ridiculous, right? The, the Biden team has been Heather Zickle or Any Moniz; those people are still the Biden team, and to the extent that those people are going to see religion out of this task force, that would be awesome. And that could happen. Like, that's why presidents put task force together. It's like a third party. If it comes up with good stuff, they say, great. If it doesn't come up with good stuff, they make sure no one hears about it again. And so, you know, like that stuff could happen. But the notion that like, this is like a clear pathway to Biden coming out with, you know, the Jay Inslee plan is not true. You're such a contrarian. I mean, there's contrarian. I mean, I, this is like this is like what everyone on the inside is talking about over here. Like pretty much every person that I talked to that worked on Inslee's campaign and then Warren's campaign is saying. Let's see what it comes up with. They're not saying, oh my God, like this is the second coming of, you know, like Sheldon Whitehouse. (laughs) They're saying this is like, you know, like a good step in the right direction. And we'll see whether it actually turns into... Biden's leadership on stimulus bills. Like, remember, none of our stuff is getting into any of these stimulus bills. The message bill that Nancy Pelosi put out, some of this new stuff. I have no idea when 1603 or direct pay is coming up for us, right? Is Biden going to actually utter those words out of his mouth on a public stage? We shall see. Same bat channel, same bat time. Okay, that's
0: that's fair. I mean, that's fair. We don't know exactly what this will mean in terms of policy pronouncements. But this has a real political benefit for Biden. I mean, look, we know behind the scenes- Which I acknowledge. I acknowledge
2: that he's co-opting the Sanders people. He's giving them something to do. He's told them that they can rewrite the Democratic platform, which is not nothing. But it's not to say that he's actually signaling yet that he is going to be a champion on these issues in ways that he hasn't been in the past.
1: Well, he did say he would rescind the cross-border Keystone pipeline permit, so- Which is
2: another issue that I almost don't care about. Like, this is what I'm saying. Like, this is where the environmentalist and clean energy people start to deviate. I never cared about Keystone. And we can go back into the Annals of Energy Gang podcast to talk about it, right? What I care about is that we have technology companies who have proven that their stuff is actually cheaper than the incumbent systems. But yet, because of inertia, we're not able to deploy at speed and scale. We are facing down climate change right now, and I want to know whether we're going to get our stuff passed. Remember, we didn't get any of our extenders or other things in the December legislation that that got done last year, right? So we're waiting on energy storage tax credits. We're waiting on all these other things, right? And so, look, I mean, I get it, like, you know, We're going to come up with a great five-year plan, but am I going to get paid next week? We'll see. Of course that stuff is going to get passed under a Biden administration. I think that's all bread and butter stuff for the Democratic Party. If the the Democratic Party doesn't win the Senate back and Biden wins a presidency, I don't think this stuff happens automatically. Oh,
1: totally. Mitch McConnell will stop anything. He did the same thing during the Obama years. I am particularly hopeful um, because R.L. Miller from Climate Hawks Vote is now a delegate at the Democratic She the is Demo- awesome. For the DNC. And she's going to really push the party. I she's think that's all good. She's going to give the DNC
2: good. a headache. Well, remember. That's
1: like, fine.
2: R.L. is that's a, a really. Good thing. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm not saying that in a derogatory way. I'm saying she's going to push it hard. No, but R.L. is a good example, right? So R.L. was the person who led led the charge to ban fossil fuel money by the DNC, right, in that vote. And remember, like eight weeks later, Perez reversed that decision and said, no, we kind of need the fossil fuel money. And so this is the battle within the Democratic Party. And I respect the battle. I think Biden is a fantastic candidate and one that I think that clean energy people should look to as the presidential candidate they should probably vote for. That being said, like, you asked me whether this was a new day, you know, because he came out with his task force. And I'm saying that the jury's still out.
0: I wonder if there are a lot of risks here for Biden, because clearly with folks like AOC and Prakash on the team, they're going to be really pushing for a phase out of fossil fuel infrastructure. So the Keystone thing is just the beginning. I mean, what, what they're going to be pushing for is an end to fracking, and that is going to create... An uncomfortable scenario for Biden in states like Pennsylvania. And so if they are pushing him to adopt policies on phasing out fossil fuel infrastructure during the campaign, that will certainly put him in a difficult position with moderate voters in swing states. And so I wonder if either of you see any risks here as well.
2: Well, it depends on what he says out of his own mouth, mm-hmm, right? It, it's it's one thing if the task force says in the Democratic platform, we hate fracking and we should shut it down, or here's a report that says fracking is definitely dying and whatever else, right? But unless Ernie Moniz or Heather Zichel say that on TV as a Biden surrogate, then I don't, Biden can sort of distance himself from it and say, look, we, you know, we all agree that we need to phase this stuff out by 2050 and... We're working hard to like make sure that we create a safe plan for the transition and all this other stuff, right? But ultimately, I think that um, the part that I get concerned about is when I hear all the names of the people on that task force. I'm trying to figure out exactly who's going to fight for clean energy technology, because right now, like I hear a lot of social justice, environmental justice people that are on there, and I hear a lot about you know folks who have like participated in congressional you know, climate change task forces. But in terms of actually who's going to pass for, like, whether we're continuing to use tax credit policy as the way to push this stuff. Is there a federal state nexus? What about, you know, what we're going to do on a national green bank? What does an infrastructure bank even look like? A lot of those people, I didn't hear their names on the task force.
1: Well, I do think, so Don McEachin is leading on the Federal Renewable Portfolio Standard. So I think he can speak to that and he has been very supportive of of all the Virginia clean energy work. So I think that brings some of that to the table and Kathy Castor too. So I think anybody who has constituents and who hears from all of us in the clean energy sector uh, will be able to bring that to the table. How about some free electrons now, Catherine, what do you got for us? Yes. I just discovered a new newsletter, um, that comes out twice a week. It started mid April and it's called the long game and it's out of Politico. It's Catherine Boudreau and Nick Giuliano who kind of compile stories on uh, not about clean tech or clean energy or climate, but about sustainability. And to me, this is really helpful because I don't know as much about sustainability and this pulls in a lot of really interesting reports. Um, this last week, they talked about how people are using public transportation. They talk about um, you know, ride share and electric bikes, how the bike industry is growing. They talk about the Global Reporting Initiative coming out with guidelines on waste to help the circular economy. So I thought that was really interesting. It's called The Long Game from Politico.
0: That's cool that Politico is getting behind that. I mean, they've typically focused on hard energy... Topics, so that's a that's an interesting shift.
1: Yeah, and you can subscribe for free.
0: <laughs> Jigger, what do you got? What's your free electron?
2: So NPR put together a pretty interesting analysis around um, air quality in March and April, and um, interestingly enough, they showed that while you know air pollution is down, it's down about fourteen percent, and I would have thought it was down even more. Not that we should, you know. Probably about 14%. 14% is a big amount. Um, And the reason why it's only 14% is that passenger cars have just gotten so clean that it's really the truck traffic that causes most of the local air pollution. And trucks have been running unabated because of, you know, like Amazon shipments and whatnot, right? So what you're finding is that actually we need less electric vehicles and more electric trucks.
0: So my free electron is nothing. I literally have nothing. I had a nightmare last night that I was called on for my free electron and I didn't have anything because I have no oh. time to do anything else besides like, you know, make podcasts. So like I'm just sitting here reading IEA reports and talking to people and doing interviews, but like I'm not consuming <laughs> any popular culture. I'm barely even consuming any other news right now, I'm not reading any books. Um, I see that TV watching is way up and we're running out of TV programs because the production pipeline is, is so constrained. But like, I haven't watched anything. And so I had this nightmare last night that like I had nothing else to talk about besides work. So that's where I'm at. And today is, what, day, day 69 for us in quarantine. And I have been doing quite well, actually, mentally throughout this process. But this week has been one of the hardest weeks for me because um, we did have the TV on the other day and my wife was watching this show where some kids who were college age got together and were having a glass of wine in a room and it just like triggered something in me about my previous life and how I used to have social <laughs> relationships and for some reason my mental state has just dramatically shifted this week and anyway I wanted to share that because I'm sure that many people have gone through a number of different cycles throughout this whole thing and and that's where my head is at these days
1: that's so funny because I was in a big funk yesterday because I could not find a moment to be alone like there's a there's a thing where you're in quarantine but if you have a family and a lot of people and an animal it's like somebody is always there and uh yeah I was like in the opposite place where it wasn't that I wanted to be social but I wanted to be by myself
2: yeah, my and my productivity is way down, right? I just find that like I'm working weirder and longer hours than ever, right? Because you know having uh, Dylan in the house all day, um, you have there's a lot of stuff going on there, and so now I'm starting to work at like 8 p.m. and then working until midnight or one in the morning, and then you're up again at seven in the morning because he wakes up, and so I, you know, like I don't think this is the uh, the vacation everybody thought it might be. <laughs>
0: I don't know how many people (laughs) thought that. Uh, I I will say on the positive side, I have uh, my daughter just turned 10 months the other day, and it has been so much fun spending way more time because she's at this really key developmental phase where she's just taking leaps and leaps every week and so without childcare we get to spend co- our time constantly with her and that is so fulfilling to watch and the connection has been way stronger than it might otherwise have been so that is very much um, the most positive story coming out of our household right now it's it's really been a lot of fun but it's been it's been a weird week let's let me just tell you
1: yeah so your kid may not be free but she's an electron <laughs> that's
2: right <laughs> you should you should uh you should look up on YouTube uh, the baby crawl race. It's fantastic. She She's going to love it.
0: All right, I'll go <laughs> check it out. And that's going to end the show. Thank you both so much. Jiggershaw and Catherine Hamilton are my co hosts. We've got Ingrid Lobet with us as well in the background. She is our senior editor. Thanks, Ingrid. We are a co production of Postscript Audio and Green Tech Media per usual just find us on social media and send us some some ideas or responses to this show and uh, give us a rating review anywhere you get your podcasts this is the energy gang weekly debates and discussions about the fast-changing world of energy we'll catch you next week